welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week I'm really pleased to get the chance to chat with Dr. Michael Hengartner. Michael is a senior researcher and lecturer at the Zurich University of Applied Sciences in Switzerland. He was an expert evaluator for the European Research Council and the World Health Organization and currently is a member of the Swiss School of Public Health, the German Society for Social Psychiatry and the European Public Health Association. His areas of expertise include psychiatric epidemiology, public mental health, evidence-based medicine and conflicts of interest in psychological and biomedical research. In this interview, we discuss Michael's recently released book entitled Evidence-Biased Antidepressant Prescription, Overmedicalization, Flawed Research and Conflicts of Interest. The book addresses the overprescribing of antidepressants and it critically examines the current scientific evidence on the efficacy and safety of antidepressant drugs. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Madden America podcast. And uh, we're here to talk about your work and in particular your new book entitled Evidence-Biased Antidepressant Prescription, Overmedicalization, Flawed Research and Conflicts of Interest, which was published by Springer in 2021. And first, you know, I want to thank you for writing it because, you know, this is such a such a valuable and important area of you know the mental health industry to write about and you know my reflection upon reading the book first was it's very comprehensive it collects together an awful lot that i think uh, you know needed to be pulled together in one place so you know i, I can't imagine it was an easy task to uh, do all the research for it so you kind of start the book yourself by writing about how you got here which seems like a good place to start to me so can you tell us a little bit about you and, and what led to your interest in research work yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me and um, giving me a platform to talk about my book. I really appreciate. Well, as I write in the book, I, um, you know, I, I was working as a research associate at the psychiatric university hospital in Zurich, and we just were doing like kind of basic, common epidemiological research and. One of my main tasks was, you know, um, data analysis and all that kind of stuff. So um, I got really interested a bit more about the scientific process, about the ambiguity of data and, and also the sometimes arbitrary decision you make when analyzing data and reporting statistical results. So that was always because I felt that makes me a better researcher. Yeah, and then there was this replication crisis in psychology where seminal studies were found to not replicate in independent evaluations and independent studies. That, that was really interesting. So I started to look at depression and then treatment of depression and all that stuff. And then I got really interested in, in all these biases that were reported, like data dredging, which we also called p-hacking because of the the p value is, is the, it represents the statistical significance of results so and um yeah and that's when i discovered this whole universe of of research done in one of the areas where i was most interested in, in depression the epidemiology of depression which also includes treatment outcomes and all that stuff and yeah, I discovered those studies where they clearly showed how selective 
results from antidepressant trials were reported, how how studies with negative results um, just remained in the file, file drawer, and then all those um, questionable or problematic research practices. And, and, and that really got me, you know. So that's why I dug a bit deeper into this literature and, and, and discovered so many things that were awfully wrong to me. So I started to, to do more research and then I also started to write about it. And one of the main areas where this was actually documented and um, researched was in the domain of antidepressants. So that's why actually I, I, I became a little bit focused on antidepressants, not because Per se, I, I had an intention, oh, I must show the world that the evidence base behind antidepressants is, is debatable. But because this was one of the best research topics, and that's where I slowly and step by step got into this. And, and also, you can say, where I got stuck. <laughs> so, wow. And, and I just wondered, Michael, you know, obviously, um, you know, we'll, we'll come on to talk in a bit more detail about some of the issues that you kind of uncovered and wrote about. But, um, you know, I've talked to other people who, you know, researchers and academics who said they, you know, had a fairly mainstream view of the mental health industry before they got involved in this. They kind of thought we'd got things sorted and we'd got good evidence-based treatments and diagnoses were discreet and all the rest of it. So, you know, w were you a person that kind of had that belief before you started writing the book and did what you find kind of shock you almost. Yeah, I also had this prevailing view because that's that's how we were taught and what we were taught and, and especially at the clinic where I was working that was never put into question, you know, because I, I also learned from my surroundings and then with talks I have with colleagues who also, you know, did clinical work and all that stuff. So that was actually never an issue that perhaps the drugs work and let's say at least not as well as the literature might suggest but, but that was never and it was actually not aware of this so for me it was quite a surprise to see that half of all trials fail to even find an effect and then and, and then to discover that that if you look at the literature you just see almost exclusively you see just positive trials and then so for me that was also quite shocking and because i knew that this knowledge was either not present or perhaps also a bit ignored. In my view, they were, they, most people were simply not aware, which I discovered later after I did publish my first papers and then during discussions with colleagues that, that for them it was also quite shocking because they, for them it was also a moment where they had to realize, okay, I, I was always so convinced that, that they work miracles or perhaps not miracles but they are really essential and and they work so well and then and then you discover those studies who demonstrate that at best the effect is rather small and, and, and of questionable value so that was very surprising to me as well yeah and and also you know in, in the kind of introductory section of the book you know i was really interested to read that you, you know you do share some personal experiences too and you, you do describe a, a time where you experienced what you call pervasive and profound, profound sadness so i wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that and what your thoughts were about that at the time you know that was a very difficult time because um i just finished my college so i was 18 19 so and then in switzerland where we have a um, mandatory military service so i had to go there 
And that was for me was was terrible because uh, I never wanted to go there and play soldier and shooting around and being yelled at from from morning till evening and, and not sleeping and just absolutely not a military man. In the army, my my mood got worse and worse, and um, there was also a lot of bullying because I expressed clearly also towards my my um, officers or whatever that I'm actually not a pro military guy. So. You can say they hated me, and 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 it was also a difficult time because I had a, a breakup shortly before I went into the army, and then all those things came up, and you know that's the time when when you the transition from from adolescence to young adulthood, so it's always um, very messy, and, and and you ask yourself who I am, I where am I, what is my future? And today you would say it was getting depressed, yeah. It sounds like you thought that was, you know, a situational thing, and you recognised that the, you know, there were things that were happening around you that made you, uh, you know, or gave you a tendency to feel sad and and lonely and, and and all the other things. But you know, did you consider that you might be depressed, or you know, was that not a not something that occurred to you? To me, it was clear that I was not feeling and behaving like I usually do. So for me, it was clear that um, I never experienced such. But a lengthy time of unhappiness and on. so for me it was quite clear that I'm feeling depressed but I also for me it was also quite clear that this is due to the situation I was in and, and it was a consequence of being in a difficult place at a difficult time with it it was also what I uh, experienced near the end of my military service so having uh, knowing that okay it's over in two weeks or three weeks so i immediately felt a, a new growing you know optimism and my, my mood was improving then uh, quite right rapidly near the end of, of of this military service yeah so for me it was quite clear that it was situation situational and Due to the circumstances, yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad that didn't last too long, and I'm glad that you found you found you found a way out of uh, of that. So, you know, if we kind of move on to you know look at some of the things that we you know interested in me reading the book. Um, so the, the first part of the book is about kind of using antidepressants in clinical practice, and um, you know, I'm sure that people will go off and read it for themselves but you know there's a very clear uh, kind of thread in the book that you know the evidence for using antidepressants in mild to moderate depression is really very poor and you know we, we've seen some recognition of that in the UK particularly because our, our kind of um, uh, evidence body the National Institute of uh, Clinical and Healthcare Excellence has stopped from recommending antidepressants as a first line uh, treatment for mild to moderate depression but uh, we, we we quite often hear uh, spoken quite loudly actually that antidepressants work better and have more utility in what's called severe depressive episodes. So I, I wondered if that was something that was supported by the evidence or, or trials or real world use when you looked at it. So that's one of the biggest conundrums, I would say, um, or not a conundrum, but um, unanswered questions because there is no unequivocal evidence or conclusive evidence that they clearly work better because the, the, the scientific literature is quite mixed. Um, most large-scale individual patient data analysis actually do not find that the treatment effect is larger in what you what we call severe depression than it is in, in mild to moderate depression. A few analyses did 
One was very influential by Fournier and colleagues, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2010. But that was based on a very small sample, 700 people around, something like that. And much larger studies that used individual patient data with thousands, several thousands of patients actually did not, were not able to replicate that, that the efficacy increases massively in, in severe depression. So I would say, based on this literature, there is um, scant or at least very um, insufficient evidence for the claim that they clearly work better in severe depression. But the issue is more complicated because in the end, what is severe depression? And then the, the distinction be between mild, moderate, or severe depression usually is made simply based on, on, on those rating scales, like the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, which actually gives equal weight to all items. So it's just if you have a score, let's say 24, you are considered moderately severely depressed. If it's less than 16, it's mild depression. So you, you get the point. And, um, but that is very problematic because imagine that someone reports mostly sleep problems, appetite issues, problems concentrating, all that, that kind of stuff. And that person has a score of 24. Another person has severe anhedonias or lack of interest and pleasure, um, severe psychomotor retardation, suicidal ideation, but has the same score of 24 because the person has, let's say, no three problems, no appetite changes, whatever. So it has the same score. So people would say they have the same severity, which actually is quite of absurd because there are clearly um, symptoms that are more indicative of a severe disorder episode, like for especially suicidal ideation and behavior, and also psychomotor retardation, which are clear indicators of a more severe episode. So this is also that that's the problem. If we only categorize into mild, moderate, severe based on these scores, we come up with findings that actually lack or, or are insufficient validity. And then another issue is um, all people firmly excluded from such efficacy trials. The trials usually exclude people with uh, which are acutely suicidal. They, they they exclude people who have psychotic symptoms. They they exclude people who abuse substances, and they also exclude people with with uh, comorbid disorders, mental and uh, physical. And and usually these are the people with truly severe episodes. So they are basically excluded. So what we call severe depression in those trials, in the end, it's very debatable whether that really is severe depression. And those who probably really have severe depression, those with multitude of, of comorbidity and, 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 and acute suicidality, psychotic symptoms and all that, personality disorders, these are excluded. So in the end, we don't really know how the drugs were in this, let's say, more truly or tr more genuinely severely depressed people. That's just a big question because these people are usually not included in such studies. So that's why I say it's, it's, it remains to be answered whether the drugs really work better in severe depression. But based on the evidence available, we can't draw firm conclusions. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. You know that that yeah, the kind of subjective nature of rating scales is 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 quite a big issue, isn't it? And you can see why academic psychiatry has spent such a long time looking for biomarkers and you know some more tangible measure of 
what a, a, a disorder may or may not be, but but they, they haven't made that much progress, have they? So you'll get the same rating tool like the Hamilton scale and it could be applied by three different psychiatrists and you could get a different diagnosis or outcome from each of those three people. Yeah, right. And scores, what you also need to be aware, I don't know whether this is mentioned in the book, but they include preferably people with high baseline scores because the expectation was that you you know if of course people who have low baseline scores so it's very hard to find the treatment effect because whatever you do it's low so we can't get any lower so the, the aim was to to have more positive trials or the hope was that you have to include people with high baseline scores so the, the recruiting centers were on the pressure to sometimes also inflate scores because let's say if the inclusion criteria was a score of at least 24 and then the, the, the application of the Hamilton rating scale gave a score of 22 sometime it was just okay just add up one or two points and then it's 24 and we can include the patient so there is for sure also some people where scores were inflated that's why also and, and that's the whole thing about regression to the mean whatever you do and if you reassess these people after two three weeks you see sometimes a re really remarkable decline in symptoms which presumably don't even reflect their true improvements because scores were you know inflated at baseline so you'll eventually see a decline that actually does not reflect a true improvement in in, in the illness actually or disorder whatever you, you want to call it yeah yeah that's, that's hugely important isn't it and and kind of linked in the book really really nicely too you, you talk about the transformation of the concept of depression between the 1970s and the 2000s and, and i wonder if you know, we, not just us as kind of medical consumers, if you like, but perhaps doctors too have been conditioned to think of depression in a different way as not an episodic thing, but a, a chronic thing. So in the 1970s, you, you write that depression was characterized as a rare but severe disorder that almost always improved with little to no intervention. And yet now, of course, you know, we see depression and anxiety known as highly prevalent, called a, a global crisis. And, you know, people, I think, are quite sometimes quite surprised when you say it's not a chronic or ongoing condition. Many, many people improve without any really aggressive treatment or intervention. So, you know, I, I wondered what you found when you were kind of writing about how we conceive of depression now compared to, you know, in, in the 1960s and 70s. I think it's important to stress that's not just my take or my reading of the literature. That's why I, I painfully cite experts in psychopharmacology and, and the, those considered the most powerful or most important or most eminent experts in this domain, which clearly stated that in most cases, it's episodic, whatever you do. Also, without treatment, most people will improve. And I quote these people, but otherwise people will say, well, that's Hengartner has a very odd reading of the literature. So that was, that was actually the common view until the early 70s. And, and then things started to change. But I think the most important driver was that the new approach to depression was the, the idea was we need a unified symptom-based definition and diagnosis of depression and that's also when also organization like the world health organization started to apply symptom questionnaires to larger population and suddenly reported oh 10 or 20 percent or whatever of people have depression symptoms but that crucial thing is what are depression symptoms so because depression has more clearly specific or 
what we call also core symptoms of depression, like really low mood, anhedonia, those things. And then you have many other symptoms that are completely unspecific. Of course, people with depression often have those symptoms, but most people who have those symptoms don't have depression, like appetite change, sleep difficulties, problems concentrating, tiredness. So these are very common, what we also call stress symptoms. And, and can also be symptoms of physical medical condition or, or, or due to another medical treatment. So these are very unspecific. And once they started to apply those symptom-based scales, of course, they, they came up with sometimes quite high symptom scores. But if you would look at what symptoms or the, which kind of symptoms are mostly responsible for those high depression scores, you would see that ex exactly these are sleep problems, appetite changes, problems uh, concentrating and all that kind of stuff. And these people who are like more constantly in an in a environment or in a situation that people who have high workload or job strain and then or constant relationship problems, marital issues, all that kind of stuff. Or even if you have a newborn, so I have three little kids so for six years, I wasn't really able to sleep. So I had for months and years, I had sleep problems. And of course, because I was always so tired, I had problems concentrating. And sometimes I also lacked appetite because if you are so tired and all that stuff, usually you are not very hungry. So if during this period where actually I was one of the happiest men in the world because I had these little kids and they, were, they are so gorgeous. But, but if you would apply a depression scale, it would result in, oh, you have mild depression because you have sleep problems, you have this, this and that, and you're tired and whatever, you know. And, and this approach, which finally also culminated in this new major depression diagnosis, which now was made fully based on symptoms, massively increased of course the prevalence rate and the thing is even worse with depression questionnaires because at least with the diagnostic criteria you require that one or two of the core symptoms must be present but the depression questionnaires uh, you you can basically um indicate that you you have no low mood no anhedonia but just sleep problems all that stuff but the, 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 the questioner completely ignores this he just makes a sum score and if you have sleep problems and all that stuff he gives you a score which indicates oh you have mild depression so and that was this big move in towards this symptom-based approach. It was also heavily, of course, supported by the pharmaceutical industry, which also advertised to GPs that they must always be on the lookout for masked depression because there are many patients, they don't clearly present with low mood or anhedonia, but it may be uh, appetite change, sleep problems. So that's masked depression. That's why we need to assess those symptoms. And the message put simply was um, as soon as someone has increased scores on these depression scales, that's probably depression, even if you don't feel that the person is depressed, has depressed mood. So this will Briefly, that was a little bit what was going on during the 70s and the 80s, and then um, which led to a complete change in how prevalent depression is and how also how how persistent it is. So, put simply, 
that's a very brief summary, but that's some, some of the most important developments that actually change the whole definition and then also the, the whole perception of depression during this crucial time. There's a kind of theme in, in, in the book, isn't there, about you know the, the, the pharmaceutical manufacturers meddling in or, or getting heavily involved in the mental health business, if you like. And, and you know that, that period, the kind of 70s and early 80s and even into the 90s were characterized by active campaigning, weren't they, by the pharmaceutical manufacturers to redefine depression and anxiety, to aggressively treat it, you know, the chemical imbalance theory arose and you know it, it was you know started to be seen as a you know a very disabling but very a treatable chronic condition that people might have to take drugs for life for so you know that the, the, the concept changed because it was pushed that way to a certain extent didn't it yeah and it was pushed of course it was pushed from a pharmaceutical industry but there was really also true concern within or among um, psychiatrists and, and psychiatric associations that we are missing a terrible issue here because if we don't look out for those symptoms we miss so many depressed cases and probably during the 16 and 70s there were most certainly the, the prevalence rate were mostly so low that probably there were people with depression who were not correctly detected and diagnosed but but the situation we have now is actually completely different now we have uh, overdiagnosis is one of the biggest issue because as soon as you present to a gp with all kind of not even specific depression symptoms you you get a diagnosis sometimes prematurely and sometimes it's really also a false positive diagnosis so now we have rather because the whole campaigning and these awareness campaigns that also followed which came then in the late 80s and then they specifically addressed the public and the gps because hey you miss so many depressed cases you have to look out for also for the unspecific depression symptoms like the stress symptoms because Otherwise, you miss so many depressed cases and we must treat them. Otherwise, they have chronic depression, whatever. Although there is absolutely no evidence that, that if you treat people with mild depression, that they have a better outcome. Now, in fact, there are studies who clearly show, regardless of whether GPs detect depression or not and whether they treat it or not, the outcome actually after one year is almost the same. So it actually did not even make a difference whether they detect those mild or sub-threshold cases or not. But the message was clear. You have to diagnose more. You have to treat more. You have to prescribe more drugs. And of course, that was very welcome also for the pharmaceutical industry. But it was not just the industry who pushed towards this new narrative and it was also a, a deep fear for within psychiatry that they are underserving so many people. Yeah, as, as we mentioned, that the, you know that the kind of pharmaceutical manufacturers' approach to this whole area is is quite a theme too in the book, and and there's a whole section on flaws in antidepressant research, which again, you know, again, I, I recommend people read because it's you know it's it's. Uh, it's comprehensive. It's very well referenced, but uh, the the kind of tricks and game playing that that kind of goes on in research is to the person like me who's not that uh, familiar with it is quite eye opening, you know. And, and even the way that drugs are licensed. So you write about the way that drugs are licensed by regulators such as the FDA in the US and MHRA in the UK, and um, 
I suppose I had this conception that, you know, before a drug is granted, it goes through many, many years of trials with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of participants. And there are many, many positive trials that show a clear benefit. So it's pretty surprising to find that actually only two positive trials are required to license a drug and sometimes not even two. And, you know, the the the, the most positive ones are selected and then many are not selected. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit about your views and what your research told you about the way that drugs are licensed and whether we should be concerned about it. Yeah, that was, um, for me, a very important topic because early on, one of the most frequent responses that I received when I submitted um, articles about, critical articles about the questionable evidence base behind or supporting efficacy was that this is actually the whole discussion is mute because the drugs regulators would not have approved the drugs if they were not clearly working and if the effects were practically or clinically meaningful and that's is um, i heard this argument even from very um, well-known psychiatry professors and, um, and and that obviously revealed that those people apparently are not really aware how the agencies, the, the, the drug agencies license drugs and the whole process. So that's why I meticulously dissect and then also detail how it happens. And as you said, the, the standard for, for drug approval is put very low. Put shortly, if, if, if you can't beat a placebo pill in one or usually two trials but for some drugs it was actually just one trial with clear statistical evidence that the drug was better than placebo you get your license regardless of whether only two of five or two of six trials so there can be a majority of trials who were negative and in the other twos there was a marginally small difference between placebo and the drug but it was statistically significant and that was enough because i quote um, a lot from the fda which is considered the most important drug regulator agency that they made clear that they are just looking at whether there is statistical evidence for an effect and not whether this effect has a practical relevance. So they made clear that if this effect is statistically significant, no matter how small, just one or two points on a hematoid scale, they consider it as evidence that the drug has demonstrated efficacy. Because in the end, yet it was statistically better than a placebo. But if you look at actually at the magnitude of this difference, you'll discover that this is a very, very small difference. But that was enough to license the drug. We talked earlier about the Hamilton depression rating scale, which I think is 30-something point. But they got several versions. You have the Hamilton 70 items, 19 items, 21 items. But the most widely applied measure, the Hamilton 17 item version you can get from zero to 52 points and yet the drug placebo difference was something like two points yeah or even less in more recent analysis so it sometimes is more around 1.7 1.8 on a scale from zero to 52 yeah and as a as a kind of healthcare consumer i don't like that term but i haven't found anything better as a healthcare consumer you know when you read that this drug is effective you know, you kind of imagine, perhaps somewhat naively, that you know, effectiveness is you know large or very, very significant. But when you actually dig into the details, such as written in your book, and you find out that the drug placebo differences are so tiny, and that's even given that the 
cards have already been stacked in favor of the trial drug by so many other ways of reporting the data that that's quite staggering i think yeah right and, and yeah right you always have to consider that this difference presumably or some might say likely to even inflate to do assumptions that the models made how they deal with missing data there's actually quite clear evidence that the statistical approach to data analysis with the last observation carried forward which should account for people who drop out who don't provide an end score that this leads to an inflation of differences there is actually the fda has conducted his own analysis and they show that this inflates the false positive rate and, and almost all drugs were um, approved based on, on this um, intention to treat with uh, last observation carried forward method. I don't want to go into details, but it's a little bit statistical, and I try to to explain it a bit in the book. But um, in essence, what, what people need to know is that we can't even be sure that the true effect really is two points. Perhaps it's even smaller than that because of the biases we know that are there that tend to rather inflate differences, overestimate differences between drug and placebo. And there are also other factors like like, like using a per protocol analysis instead of an intention to treat analysis. Um, sometimes also certain centers or uh, were excluded um, because the data didn't look quite good enough in those centers. So you restrict the study population to, let's say, a uh, selective population where there seems to be a bigger effect so you don't report the results for all and some more and some more so there are really systematic biases that suggest that perhaps this small difference is even an overestimate yeah absolutely so um you know again people can can kind of read for themselves in the book and I, and i think they should you know because you lay really clearly out how these problems kind of in research kind of stack on top of each other and become additive and then there's a presumption to approve drugs by the regulator so you know I, you've talked about some of them selective publishing short term trials changing statistical methods halfway through inadequate sampling ghost writing so you know given all this i wondered what you felt was perhaps the biggest driver of distortion in the evidence supporting the evidence base supporting the use of antidepressants biggest single factor in my view certainly is selective reporting which also includes publication bias so you just we know quite for sure that just about half of trials are positive but in the published literature this rate is close to 100 percent not exactly but but um which if you just look at the literature you have the impression that in most trials, efficacy was demonstrated when, in fact, it's really not. It's just in about half of trials, which actually is already quite worrisome if a drug just works in every second trial. But selective reporting also excludes also selectively only reporting outcomes that were favorable. Because even if the main outcome, the primary outcome is, is the Hamilton depression scale, you, you, you can use that scale in very different ways you, you can calculate you can dichotomize you, you make arbitrary categories between people who have improved or not improved you can um, use different statistical modeling approaches to to whatever you look at endpoint scores or change from baseline then you can also use um combination of criteria which was done so for instance people have a depression score lower than that and based on another assessment they were considered as responders and you can combine so many different so at least with just with one scale you have 
plenty of different outcomes that you can define. So, and, and, and th that's what also happened in the infamous uh, study um, 329, the Paroxetine trial where they started to, 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 that was just about p hacking in, in, in creating new outcome based on scales they had or just reporting new scales that they were not eventually declared as primary outcomes and so on. So there are many things and that also falls into the rubric of selective reporting. And, 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 um, in the end, if you have two or three different depression scales, which usually they have, then you have some global scales of improvement, like the clinical global impression. You have also sometimes you have a scale for global functioning. You have a scale for quality of life. And, and if you have so many different outcomes and you can define the outcome in many different ways. So in the end, you have 20, 30, 40, 50 different ways how you could define your outcome. And once, even if the trial was negative on the pre-specified primary outcome, you start digging into the data and you start transforming and changing and everything. And you will inevitably come out with some kind of definition of outcome where you can demonstrate a statistically significant effect. But that's just post hoc changing, which is actually very, very um, mostly just randomness that you capture so false positive findings but that happens a lot so besides of selectively publishing the trials those who are published are also selectively reported often not all but and there's a lot of selective reporting going on so on. i think it all highlights you know again how difficult it is for people to uh, you know, make an informed assessment about whether antidepressant treatment is right for them and whether the drug is efficacious enough to really make a, a difference for them. And, and it, you know, it's it seems to be trial and error on the basis of the person rather than being able to rely on a consistent, reliable evidence base to support your decision about whether to take them or not. True. And then, again, there's the other issue that we talked about in the beginning, that even if we could say we have a clear robust effect perhaps regarding activation you, you have still no guarantee that you will really improve from this effect or benefit from this effect because as we said and then there are many surveys um, user surveys where they, this is made clear that for some this effect is, was helpful for others it was for perhaps for a short time it was helpful but then with uh, with time it became kind of a burden or, or became turned into an adverse effect and for some it's right from the beginning it was an unpleasant rather an adverse effect so even if we had clear and robust reliable evidence that this is where the drugs really make a difference we still on an individual user level we can't be sure that you will really benefit from this effect Thank you. I wonder if we could turn to the kind of latter sections of the book, which talks of, about solutions for reform, uh, you know, and also, again, captures some of your, you know, your experience of having written critically a, about these issues. So you share how difficult it is to give messages that contradict this mainstream narrative. And, and you wrote that there were times I felt exhausted and crestfallen, demoralized by insults on social media and irritating ad hominem attacks by anonymous reviewers. And, you know, as someone looking into this world who's is not an academic to me there seems to be a, a real pressure to protect 
the reputation of antidepressants as safe and effective drugs by key opinion leaders, uh, you know, senior voices perhaps in, in, in psychiatry. So, um, you know, I, I wondered if you felt that too. And, you know, I, I wondered what it was like actually, you know, writing a book from a critical perspective like this, because I know it will be welcomed, but I know it will also be challenging too. Yeah, that's why I hesitated for a long time because it- as I described in the book, at the beginning, I was very naive and I thought, oh, okay, this is an imp- um, interesting scientific analysis of the evidence base. But I quite quickly realized that uh, it's more than just about the science behind effectiveness. So there are a lot of different interests here that, that provoke, sometimes provoked very, very angry responses and you know as a practitioner you always need to consider how these people were trained they are not aware of those studies that the over thousand studies that i reference in my book because when i talked uh, at clinics or hospitals and the audience all mostly is very receptive and and they I had great talks after the presentations when psychiatrists and other physicians came to me to say, oh, wow, oh, that's really news to me. I never knew about all those studies, for instance, regarding selective publication, all that stuff. And they were also quite shocked. So I don't think that the majority of practitioners, they just try to defend something that the pharmaceutical industry wants to prevent. They are really convinced that the drugs work and 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 what makes things even more difficult is they observe it in their daily practice and as we discussed before what they observe they yeah in most cases they observe improvement but because they prescribe drugs to most people that they see they can't really judge whether this is a drug effect or if it would have occurred even without a drug so what they see improvements they were trained that the drugs are effective they they often go to, to continuing medical education programs that are often sponsored or otherwise supported by the pharmaceutical industry with catchy key opinion leader giving marketing messages. And and, and so that's actually the, the whole universe. And suddenly there come some strange people along who challenge this worldview this belief system and and then so that's why i was i was also called a, a flat earth believer um that was one of the nicer at hominem attacks because for them it's just completely absurd that no it's so clear there's so much evidence we are we were trained in a medical school that this works and then we have those presentations and we have those uh, educational events and then we see it and then suddenly comes someone and says the treatment effect is sometimes quite uncertain and they just can't believe it and i think that's actually the mo- most that most people are simply not aware of these issues and for them it's just unimaginable that it could be quite different to what they were trained and and, and teached and what they observe. So I think that's the main issue. Um, And and, then the critical appraisal of scientific data is not a crucial thing in med schools. Most doctors are poorly trained in science and, and, and data analysis and statistics. So they don't really understand, most don't really understand it. And they don't see, for them, it's just, ah, oh, but it was a statistically significant effect. So end of the discussion. So they don't see that methods are much more complicated than that. And um, 
don't want to denigrate the scientific knowledge of, of doctors, but most doctors, of course, their training is about practice and not about science. And, and that's a known issue. So um, they rely on what their supervisors tell them or the people who present at, at such um, lectures or medical education events. And also the 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 visits from from pharmaceutical sales representatives which also mostly deliver marketing messages so you know when you're thinking about um you know reform and the future i wondered what you felt was perhaps the biggest change that we could make to you know this this whole area so that we could try and ensure that more people are helped and, and less people are exposed to potential harm you know what what could we do differently yeah, there are different approaches. Um, I think first and foremost, we need to change the way how we define and diagnose depression. So I'll make a suggestion that we make the definition more conserv conservative. So to exclude more reactive, normal emotional reactions to, to, to stressful life events. And so we need more stringent definition um, that sets the bar a little bit higher um, because now the, the, the diagnosis is so over-inclusive just two weeks of feeling down or for whatever reason qualifies as a ma major depression episode you know even the term major because it, 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 that's the, one of the most ridiculous things you can have major mild depression which is a contradictory well, what is it now is it mild depression but major sounds like a terrible illness so but actually you have major mild depression and um, so we need a different definition and and, and then of course uh, i think one of the most important factors is that the, the whole drug licensing um, approach needs to be also more stringent and just beating a placebo pill in one or two trials is just not enough. So I think a new drug should clearly demonstrate that it is better than established cheap drugs, um, standard drugs that are already for years on the market. So a drug should really, a new drug should demonstrate that it doesn't beat a sugar pill. It should demonstrate that it beats an established treatment. Otherwise, it has no added value when it comes with a similar um, uh, adverse effect profile. So that's another thing. And also that you can conduct as many trials as you want. You just need to show that at least two were positive. Also, it's a very strange approach. Um, as a penalty shooter, if I hit the, in football, if I hit the goal just um, every 10th time or every 8th, that doesn't make me a good penalty shooter. Even I can say, hey, from 10 shots, Two were successful, or so. Hey, you're a good penalty shooter. If I just hit twenty percent, that's a very poor rate. So I think that that should take into consideration. I said I think the majority of trials clearly need to be positive. And then, of course, you know, improving pre-registration, clear adherence to to a study protocol, so to minimize the whole effect of selective reporting and all that stuff. And and what we clearly need is, uh, is a rather strict separation between industry interests and, and medical practice. So fund, industry funding of continuing medical education and the, the, the sometimes massive financial support of department chairs and whole medical department that have make most of their income due to uh, pharmaceutical um, money. Um, we need a clearer separation because otherwise, you, of course, if you need, you know who pays for your job and who pays for your research, of course, you are 
responsible to that person. You also need to deliver because the person who pays expects something in return. So scientists will, even if it's unconscious, they will try to present the results that satisfy the paymasters. So we need a clear separation here as well. So we actually need to end the whole or the massive entanglement between clinical practice and pharmaceutical uh, financial interests of the pharmaceutical industry that needs more separation. And um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, as we come towards the close, I wanted to ask uh, about you. You recently shared on social media that in addition to being a researcher, you were starting to train as a psychological therapist. And it's such welcome news, Michael, because we need so many more, I think. So can you tell us a little about your decision to become a, a clinician as well as a, a researcher? Yeah, there are different reasons. Um, for me, it's also about, you know, development and, and having a new perspective something you know doing more than just research which sometimes can be rewarding but most of the time is can also be very frustrating and uh, and a very difficult process um in doing all this kind of research i was always wondering is there not a way another way you could do more perhaps um also doing something different Besides just sitting in front of a computer and writing papers, analyzing data, searching the literature and all that stuff, which is very interesting. But sometimes um, after a few years and depending on the reactions that your research provokes, it can also be quite challenging. So therefore, I, I came to the decision that I also want to to go into clinical practice, some, be closer to really those directly trying to help people because science is very indirect and whether there really is a transfer from science into practice is also huge unknown whether my research really changes something who knows and if it does perhaps it's just a tiny little bit so to do more i also need to work in practice and i'm directly trying to help people with what I can offer. So that would be psychotherapy uh, since I'm not a physician. Michael, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk today. And, you know, I have to say your book is highly readable. It, it's compelling and it's comprehensive. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty clear from the 84 pages of references, you know, quite how much research effort went into pulling together this picture of, you know, I have to say, you know, my personal opinion, I know, but a pretty dismally broken uh, system that an awful lot of people rely on to help them get out of some very difficult places. So, you know, I, I hope that your book does open that critical conversation up to, you know, many more people and uh, allows us to interact with each other with a bit more civility about how we improve because improvement is, is desperately needed. And I'm so grateful to you for joining me today and, and also for your efforts writing the book. Thank you very much, James. It was a great pleasure for me talking to you. Well, I just want to thank Michael so much for taking the time to talk with me today for the podcast. And if you'd like to know more about the book, you can visit the website link.springer.com and search on Michael's name or the title Evidence-Biased Antidepressant Prescription to find the book. So as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.